0: One Hope Church. Glad each and every one of you are here today. Um, some of you we haven't seen in a while, and we're glad you're back for Alumni Sunday. Um, I had a lot of messages from people saying, Man, I wish I could be here today. Uh, but couldn't for one reason or the other. Um, but it's just awesome to hear from so many people, and we're so glad those of you who are able to make it today. Came um, also a special welcome to our guests and um, to family, and so we're glad that you're here uh, today as well. And so uh, we're just going to continue this morning in our study through the Book of Acts. Uh, we're in Chapter Six, um, and this morning we're just going to hit the first seven verses. But I really believe it's a oh, just a wonderful and critical passage um, for the book. It's just one of those sort of hinge passages, but can sometimes I think get overlooked. At you may or may not be familiar with the story, but it's one of those we can kind of read and go, well, that's neat, that's cool, and kind of move on. Um, but in some ways, I really feel like the you know we're always hopefully always learning. I think what I've been learning. Over the last one to two years, is really summarized um, in this in these seven verses. Um, they, they mean a lot to me, and I hope they'll mean a lot to you by the time we're done here uh, this morning. Because my thesis is um, that there's a—I mean, well, there's just a reality. There's a there's a cultural problem um, here in the early church in in Acts chapter six, one through seven. There's a there's a cultural sin problem that has to be addressed, and if they don't address this well, then the book of Acts might be a much shorter book, and it might be rather depressing. Um, but we'll see how well they handle that this morning, and then the results of that. So I believe it's really, really critical for us to, to get this and to, to understand. Um, if they hadn't gotten it right, the spread of the gospel throughout the world I think it would have been greatly hindered. Um, and the fact that in the modern church we often haven't gotten this right has hindered the gospel of Jesus Christ going forward um, in our world. And so it's, it's, it's kind of uh, important and, and deep. I, I'm going to do the best I can to move through it, but I really wish we had three or four hours because there's just so much here in these seven verses. Um, some of you are now fearful because you know... If um, you've been here before. <laughs> yeah, so alumni are fearful. Now, here we go. Uh, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll, we'll get it. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your goodness to us, God. We thank you to be with friends and church family, and Lord, just um, to come together for the purpose, the common purpose that we have, to declare that you are our God, to declare that Jesus Your Son is our one hope who came into this world to die on the cross for our sins and to be risen from the dead, and that one day, Jesus, you will return as the victorious King. Until that day, Lord, help us to live our lives accordingly. Um, Help us to live them with everything in our lives under the submission of, of your authority and your power, dear Jesus. Help us to live as true disciples. In your name, Jesus, we ask it. Amen. So, the, the big picture idea this morning, again, is that the division of God's people by ethnic, cultural, language, and racial factors is a gospel issue. And it's a very important gospel issue. Uh, we saw from the very beginning that the early church was given a mission. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, "But Jesus says, but you will receive... Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So that's the mission that Jesus Christ gave his disciples and was given, you know, for the early church to fulfill. To take the message of Jesus Christ, that he is the risen and victorious King, that he is the Savior, that he is the one true hope of the world, to take that message to every human being, to every man, woman, and child. In every place in the entire world. That has been you know, what is to be the mission of the church from beginning to end. And to see the name of Jesus glorified in every place. So in the first um, few chapters, that vision, that mission is largely on track. We see a few key elements. We see the prayer of the early church. That's one of those repeated themes. The prayer of the early church. We see the boldness in sharing the gospel. We see that the early church was not ashamed to proclaim the name of Jesus. And even when others did not want to hear that message, they were not ashamed to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. That the early church had unity. um, That they they had unity, they had intimacy, they had a sharing in all things. We see that they were unwavering. They have begun to see more opposition. They have begun to have to pay a price um, in opposition to be part of this movement, to be part of the early church, and they were willing to pay it. Up to this point, in the first five chapters, we only have one recorded um, hiccup, one one thing that happens where Ananias and Sapphira um, conspired to lie and to appear that they are better followers of Jesus than they actually are. It wasn't that they did anything wrong when they sold their piece of land and um, you know wanted to keep some of it from themselves, it was theirs. They were free to do with it what they wanted. But when they wanted to be the hypocrites, when they wanted to um, have an appearance of a spirituality that they did not, in fact, possess, and they lied about their giving, God took care of the problem. God took care of it, and then there's a, a purification um, in that in that early church, but now that was an individual sin. This is the first time we have in the early church the problem of a systemic cultural sin. And so let's read what that was. Um, and let's read the first seven verses, and we'll break it down. It says, "Now in Acts chapter six, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews." And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselytite of Antioch. Now these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and, lay, and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Amen. Okay. You know, sin is committed by individuals, right? Uh, but some sins are more individual than others. Some of them are are collective sins because they're cu- culturally ingrained. They're, they're sins that are committed that people commit without really thinking about them. There, there's not a, a, a huge process going on mentally or in the heart. It's just what people do because those particular sins have become normalized. So people commit normalized sins without really understanding what they're doing uh, because everybody around them is doing the same things. And I'm sure that at some point there's little, little hints, little convictions by God, but those are easily ignored because this is just what we collectively do. So in this... Situation: We have a problem because we have um, these two groups of people in the early church. We have the Hebrew, Hebrews who have become followers of Jesus. These are Jewish people who they're referred to as Hebrews because they still speak Hebrew. That is what their dominant, you know, language when they were communicating um, with one another. And then you have the Hellenists who speak Greek, and most of those do not. They do not speak Hebrew anymore. And there's reasons for this. Um, we have, back in the Old Testament, a couple of times where, because of their sin, Israel is defeated, um, and they, many of the people are shipped off into captivity, um, into Babylon, for example. And there, many of the people decide that it's easier. They still want to re- maintain their Jewishness, but they also know that it's an easier life if they adopt the ways and customs of the dominant culture that they're in. So many times you have people, um, you know, what do people do when they're in a dominant culture and they're, they're a, a minority within that culture? What are some things they do? Well, language is one of those things. Many times people will stop, you know, teaching their kids or having their, their kids taught their, their native tongue and, go and have them taught the dominant tongue in that, in that area. When they have children, they'll stop giving them, you know, in this case, Hebrew names and begin giving them uh, names that are in, in Greek. Uh, these are things that people do because it's sometimes it's you know it's an easier path for many people, you know, at least viewed as easier to fully you know assimilate um, to the dominant culture that they're in, and and this happens all over, you know, our world today and yet back in here we have in Jerusalem because again remember that you have people that have come back that you know they have this longing for home and so they've come back to Jerusalem you know from these you know many different parts of the world that they've lived in they've lived in you know in Egypt and in Greece and in Rome and in Turkey and in other places and and now some of them have come back permanently others have come you know came back as we saw at the beginning for you know, Passover, and because it takes us a long time to journey somewhere, you don't just show up for a week. I mean, you show up for several months. And so, you know, they, they've come in for Passover, and then they've stayed for, you know, Pentecost, which is 50 days you know, later. Um, and so then they're encountered by God, through the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and they become followers of Jesus and become part of the early church, and they're not ready to leave yet. Nobody, you know, people are, are hanging out in Jerusalem. They're not, yes, the message is to go, but man, this is so awesome, and what God is doing here is so great. We've got to stay. We have to stay and be part of this. And, but yet, there's these cultural things that are built in. Because in the eyes of of Hebrew-speaking Jewish people, those who were Jewish but, you know, by their ethnicity and everything, but could not, those who were Israelites who could not speak Hebrew, were looked down upon. They were, you know, second-class citizens. Because they couldn't even read the Old Testament in the original language, and that's why, you know, that's why the you know, Old Testament, one of the reasons why the Old Testament was translated into Greek, what's called the Septuagint. Um, you can read more about that in our foundations book if you haven't picked one of those up yet. Um, but they weren't as good. Now, they weren't as, you know, they weren't as bad, quote unquote, as Gentiles, but they weren't good enough. That was the viewpoint. Now, just because they had um, all come to know Jesus doesn't mean the problem is solved. I mean, and we have to rec- understand and recognize that while we're talking about this event back here, we're also talking about things all over our world today because in every nation, there is a way of dividing citizens into classes. It's true in every single nation. It's common. Um, In Mexico, if you go to Mexico, there's a division among classes between those who are more European in their descent on one end of the spectrum to those who are pure indigenous on the other end of the spectrum. And where you are, you know, but what point you enter, you know, you're born into that system dictates a lot of things when it comes to, you know, economics and opportunity and education. And yes there are some who overcome and over you know rise above those things. But that doesn't mean we don't have a systemic problem. We still have a systemic problem. So, you know, you think about the United States as we talk about our own country, at the beginning the system was designed the system was designed from the beginning to give whites particularly white males the greatest advantage. That's I mean that's you can try to argue that if you want to, but that would be you know just kind of denying the basic historical facts. That when they said, you know, we believe you know, all men are created equal, that somewhat is a grace of God that that is written that way. But the people who originally wrote that did not fully intend that for every person from every place. They, went, they meant it for white males such as themselves that they were all created equal, which was a step forward in terms of how things would have been broken down economically where they came from and the feudal systems and everything back in Europe. But it still isn't nearly the idea and intent that we desire to have for it, you know, today. And we've done a good, you know, we've made a lot of progress. It's not to say we haven't made progress in the fight against systemic racism in our own nation. But if you think that's solved now, well, that's also naive. Because it still exists in banking, in real estate, in education, all of these things exist. You want an example of that in our own community? You can look at Gaines School Elementary. It's the only school in our county that's on the list in Georgia for failing schools. Well, if you look at how the map is drawn, it's like you have a circle of where those kids are coming from, and then it's like a balloon. And it's like you tied a string to that balloon, and then at the end of that string, you put a school. And the kids that live right across the street from that school don't go to that school. Well, why don't they go to that school that is right across the street from them? Systemic racism. Bottom line. Bottom line. It's designed because people didn't want their kids going to school with those kids. That's why it is how it is. That's in our own community. And it affects kids in our own community today. Today. So we can't say these problems are solved or they're done away with. What we see happening here in a small way in Acts chapter 6 just continued on, but it's been not addressed well enough and it's, you know, multiplied because sin's like a cancer when if it's not dealt with, it just continues to grow. Sin like a cancer. If it's not dealt with, it just continues to grow. So, I'm going to camp here just for another minute because we've got to under, understand this. It, I think it's critical that we understand this, and in the life of, of times in which we live, it's critical that we understand these things. Because it's a sin problem, and many times... You know, great myths are created in order to justify divisions and to justify oppression. What I mean by that, we talk all the time about race, and there's reasons that we talk all the time about race, but do you understand that before the 1500s, people didn't talk about race? Why didn't people talk about race before the 1500s? The concept didn't really exist. See, in biblical language, you have ethnicities, you have languages, you have nationalities, but you will not find race. You will not find any sort of div- of division or categorizing based on the color of one's skin. You have it geographically based, you have it ethnically based, you have it l- based on language, but before the before these times, modern times, you will not find. You can you you look through your scriptures and you won't you won't find a, a word in Hebrew or, or Greek that is equivalent to our word race today. It's just not there. Well, why did that begin to be used? Well, in the 1500s is when people started taking people who were kidnapped, you know, from Africa and putting them over into the Americas first in, you know, the Caribbean and in the and South what's well, now South America and then on up you know to North America. As we know it today. So how can how can one group of people treat another group of people in such fashion? Now there are you know some you know truly, truly wicked people who need no justifications. It's just a simple matter of I'm more powerful than I want, therefore nothing else. For anybody else matters. But most people need some sort of, you know, rationalization for their sin, some sort of self-justification. And what was the method of that justification? The method of that justification is well, the people that these are being done with aren't really people. They are less than ideal humans, they are subhuman. Subhuman. And I know that having these sort of conversations can make some people uncomfortable because whenever in the church, you know, it's like, well, we're going to talk about sex today or we're going to talk about money today. People go, oh, no, you know, fearful about what's going to be said. And so then we don't say anything at all a lot of times. Well, that's just ridiculous because this is the day and times that we live in and these are key real issues that we all have to face and address. We have to do so with wisdom and with sensitivity, but we have to address them nonetheless. We can't be silent on these things. And so, you know, scientists and you know what we would consider today as you know anthropologists and even wicked—I'm going to use air quotes on this—theologians worked together to create a a language that put Caucasian, and they made up a a myth that the ideal humans came from these Caucasus, you know—mountains, and the people were very white. And then as you move on one side toward Asian and you move on the other side toward African, you become less human to the point of being not human, not a person, and therefore not having basic human rights. This is the mythology that was created. And uh, Kenneth Powell uh, an African-American man wrote a powerful argument, and in it he challenges those who are white to consider, what were you before you were white? And that same question is answered to people of, is asked, should be asked to people of every, you know, color. What were you before you were black? What were human beings is the answer. We have the same first parents is the biblical answer. You know, it's an interesting thing because with the theory of evolution, for, for decades it was thought that there was a spontaneous evolution where human beings as we know them today, you know, popped up. You know, once we kind of got beyond this myth of, of higher and lesser to some degree, at least on an academic level, you know, but human beings popped up in these different places and that explained why, you know, some were of, you know, one color and some were of another color had certain physical features, And would you believe it, you know, with the advancements in DNA research, come to realize, well, most people, now, most people, according to them, have the same common parents from Africa. Okay, well, we're getting closer. And you notice that with each advancement in their science, we get closer to the biblical record. Still not quite there yet, but on the way. But on the way, as science gets better, it gets closer to the biblical truth. You see, you know that's that's a problem when people believe just everything that the acad- academics, you know, and, and we value academics. But when that is just taken, well, whatever people with PhDs say is truth, you end up believing. You know, you can end up believing for a long time a crazy law in this spontaneous evolution of human beings just in different places all over the planet, and then be, look and go, oh, wait, well, that was just ignorance, because now our DNA, you know, our, our work with DNA creates a much different picture than that. And what I would contend with you today is, again, as science gets better, it becomes more biblical. As science gets better, it becomes more biblical. So, anyway, that's just a little thing there. But when you can rationalize that human beings are not human beings, then you can justify all sorts of things. You can justify slavery. You can can justify partial birth abortion. You can justify these sort of, you know, hideous things when you eliminate personhood When you eliminate the concept of a human being, then you are free to do what you want with that that it, that thing. Because a person is changed from a thou. Because as human beings, we are thou's. But a person is changed from a thou to an it. And that's a that's a terrible and awful thing when it happens. You know, that, that's Holocaust-type stuff happens when, you, when vows are changed to its. So this is important for us to understand as followers of Jesus because you know, these early church followers of Jesus, us today who say, yes, I believe in you, Jesus, we still have a cultural background with its cultural norms and understandings. We still have things that are ingrained in us. We still have so many things that we have to unlearn. We have to unlearn them and learn anew in a godly and biblical way. We have to unlearn so much stuff. And if you haven't gotten to the point in your walk with Jesus yet that you have come to the realization of, hey, I've got a lot of junk to unlearn. Then there's probably a long ways to still walk with Jesus. That's one of those big milestone steps, is when you realize, wait, I've got a lot of stuff that's got to get unpacked. I got to unlearn, and I got to, you know, rethink. You know, one of the things historically you know, in our church, because we have people coming from, you know, all sorts of different denominations and, and backgrounds and everything, and people come in with, you know, these, their, their pre- preconceived ideas. And some of those preconceived ideas are good and right and true, and some of them aren't, but we ask every every person to leave as best they can. Leave your bias at the door. Leave your preconceived understandings, you know, at the door. And, and take what the Word of God says and let that dictate what you believe and why you believe it. And not your tradition. Some things are going to match with your tradition and you hold those things and that's great and good and there's not a problem with that. But the things that don't match your t- tradition, whether it's the tradition in the church you came from, the tradition in the home you came from, or the tradition of your ethnicity or your culture, those things that don't match according to the Word of God We have to leave behind. We have to leave behind. And we say, God, what is your way? We're to strive to follow that fully as best we can. So now notice this as the apostles need to solve this issue here and now. Verse 2, and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers and sisters, pick out from you among seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So first of all, the apostles acknowledged that there was a problem. They acknowledged the truthfulness of the situation. They didn't pretend like the sin didn't exist. They didn't try to excuse the sin. And you know, we always, and I think we always want to do this. When they excuse the sin, well, if you, I mean, if you just knew their hearts, I mean, they, don't, they really don't mean to be offensive or they don't mean to be discriminatory and how they're, you know, giving out the daily distribution to the widows. You know, it's, there's just misunderstandings here. And you know, there's a temptation to not address the issue as it really is. But they didn't try to excuse the sin and they were willing to fulfill their responsibility before God, regardless of the potential fallout. What if many of the followers of Jesus who were Hebrews got angry and said, well, we're going to do our own thing then. Why don't you know, let let the Hellenists have their own church. Let them have their own church, and we'll have our own church, and they can take care of their own, and we'll take care of our own. What if they had done that? What would the repercussions be? It was a risk the apostles were willing to take. But here's the deal. I really don't think it was that risky in this case. I don't think it was that risky in this case. Why is that? Because it's obvious that both the Hebrew and Hellenistic followers of Jesus, at this point, they were true disciples. They had shown a pattern of self-sacrifice. They had sold their lands and their possessions. And they were truly All in. They were truly all in. People like this can generally be trusted to confess their sins and to change when they're confronted. People who are all in with Jesus are open to hearing, I'm wrong, or I need to change, or my pattern of behavior was not appropriate. People who are truly all in can be trusted to confess their sins, and to change when they're confronted. Wolf, um, theologian, asks us a question. Why should we want to do away with our self-deceit and prejudice if they give us power and privilege? He doesn't give a straightforward answer to that, but he he astutely observes, my purpose in raising the question is to make a simple but frequently overlooked point. Before you can search for truth, you must be interested in finding it. Before you can search for truth, you must be interested in finding it. And so what we see is that, the, that Jesus following Hebrews of the early church definitely wanted to know the truth and were willing to pay the price to find it. They were willing to give up their favorite, the, you know, the ones from the Hebrew background, Hebrew speaking background, they were willing to give up their favorite status for a greater purpose, the unity and health of the, of the church. Also, we see here that the apostles knew that their primary responsibility was to pray and to preach. The preaching wasn't just for the meetings of the church. It was oftentimes in individual conversations or in small groups of people in the marketplace, in the temples, in the temple, in the synagogues, um, wherever that people would be willing to listen, that they had a responsibility to proclaim the word of God in the world. Yeah, because in the church... The, for the church, there's many things to do in the world. There are many things that we need to address. Um, things that we need to be working for, bad things that we need to be working against. But in all things, the leaders in any lo- local church or in any movement need to be careful that prayer and the ministry of the word maintain their place of priority. We get that prayer and the sharing of the word needs to have a maintain its high place, regardless of what other calls or causes that we're called to work on and to work for. The ministry of the word, the logos, which is the same word used to describe Jesus as he comes in the beginning was the word. You know, that's our main message is not anything but to, to preach and to teach the message of jesus christ his salvation what he taught for us his kingdom and our world needs this because the message of jesus christ can change hearts and minds because we have you know we have a lot of things we want to accomplish in this world we want we want to fight against human trafficking and against you know slavery that's still all over in our world today we want to work towards better education for kids here in athens for girls in tanzania on a little island in Lake Victoria. We want to feed orphans and widows, and you know, we're, we're part of providing medical care in Mexico and education there and all sorts of other things. And, we, you know, and these are the sort of things that the early church cared about. So we're with them in that same heart and, and mind, but none of these can take the place of the gospel Many times this sort of work um, opens up doors for the gospel, helps more people to participate in the work of the gospel, but there's a danger if our good deeds replace the good news of Jesus Christ. There's a great danger in that. It's been done many times in the past, and it can never produce the sort of eternal results that we desire to see. Because you know, we can work on those external things. You can pass laws, and you can work hard to you know fight against these issues that we've talked about but those things in and of themselves don't change people's hearts because the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to free both oppressor and the oppressed and a lot of times we forget about the oppressor and understanding the oppressor needs Jesus you know John Newton who wrote amazing grace he was a a key part of an oppressive system in the North Atlantic slave trade. Well, he needed the gospel, and he needed the grace of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, if you look at his life, though, when he came to believe in Jesus, not everything related to these cultural issues and his cultural sins changed overnight. But because he had become a follower of Jesus, over time, as he was confronted about the sin of that North Atlantic slave trade, he became one of the biggest opponents of it and greater fight, greater, greatest fighters against it. But at that point in his life, his heart had changed from a heart of stone to a heart of clay that could be shaped and formed more like his Savior. That's actually brought this today. I didn't have any clay, um, pure clay, but just, you know, brought some Play-Doh and brought this stone from a river. My kids like these sort of things. We all like these sort of things. Okay, let's be real. But this morning, which is closer to the representation of your heart? Is it a, is it a heart of stone that doesn't want to change, that is resistant to it, to becoming more like Jesus? Or is it like this play that you can squeeze? And you know what? Because you know, we have a human heart. You know, when we're squeezed, we feel it, and sometimes it's not comfortable. And sometimes being shaped more into the image of Jesus Christ is painful, Because we have to work through some stuff. We have to acknowledge our sins. But would you rather be the hard stone that isn't movable, that isn't changeable, that isn't malleable? Or would you rather be the soft clay in the hands of Jesus Christ? Those are clear, distinctive options for us. And over time, you can allow your heart, even if it's soft at one point, you can allow it to grow hard. If your heart has been hardened, you can allow it to be softened by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in your life. We have to deal with the underlying roots, not just the symptoms of that great, deep problem of sin. We see that the apostles, the third thing we see by the apostles is that they knew you know, all the good work that needed to be done. They knew they were incapable of doing all of that work alone. So get this, this is novel for many of us. They asked for help. I mean, that's earth-shattering here, right? For a lot of us, it is, because we're just like, well, I can do that, and that, and that, and the list keeps growing and growing. But here, they asked for help in accomplishing the work Verse 3, therefore, brothers and sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So the apostles came up with a solution, and, and they would appoint them, but they allowed the collective whole to participate and to say, okay, you just, who are these seven men of good reputation that we can appoint for this? And both the Hebrews and the Hellenists all agreed on the seven men that we're going to see. And they cho- they chose, you know, so they said that pleased everyone. They they liked that idea. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Well, what's in a name? You know, a name can tell you a lot. Um, you know, if this list of names included names like Juan Montoya, Victor Hugo, Eduardo Serrano. Well, what would that tell you? Well, you go, oh, well, those are Hispanic names. I have I fit that in somewhere. Well, these names, they're all Greek names. They're not Hebrew names. That's powerful. That is power. That's that's really like the key to the passage. And and if you don't know that these are Greek names and not Hebrew names, you might miss the key to the passage. That they take those who had, you know, that were on the raw end of the deal, and put them in responsible not just for their own, but for everyone, of how this problem should be solved in administering the daily distribution for all the widows, the Greek-speaking widows, the Hebrew-speaking widows, all of them. It's powerful. The collective whole saw that that was the solution. I also believe that solution was driven by the power of the Holy Spirit. But as they were a prayerful people and sold out to Jesus, and they received the wisdom that they were looking for and who they appointed. The character of the men that, was, that were selected was beyond reproach. And we see again that the, the malleable, soft hearts, especially of the Hebrew-speaking, the dominant culture, followers of Jesus. So verse 6, they set the apostles... They set these seven before the apostles. They prayed and laid their hands on them. That's a pattern we see throughout the New Testament church. If you're going to send people to do a task, it's necessary for those who have a spiritual authority and leadership in the local church or in the greater movement to pray, to lay hands on their people, to transfer authority for the task, power, responsibility. It's also, I believe, a commitment from the church to remember and to pray for those who are doing, doing the work. When we send people out into other places in the world, we have a responsibility to remember them and to pray for them and to hold them dear to our hearts. Just thinking about, um, you know, Ellie, new in Bolivia, and adjusting to all the cultural changes and, all the, and the altitude and all the different things that she's encountering. And she needs to be in our prayers. And that's just one of many that we've sent um, over the years. But verse 7 our last verse, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So now listen to these results. So the word of God goes forward without being hindered. The number of disciples continues to multiply greatly. It wasn't hindered by lack of unity. It wasn't hindered by cultural strife among believers. It would have, I believe at this point, gotten a bit stuck. And instead, the power of the gospel was you know, just launched forward. We see this even in the priests, who to this point, most of the priests have been very resistant to the gospel. So why does Luke here say that their hearts, You know, he's telling us that their hearts are softened, and that they come to salvation. You see, hey, he's linked it to the unity, and he's linked it to this event where this cultural problem was solved. Because you can better be sure that the priest, the leading priest, knew, because they're very concerned, and, you know, what's happening with this movement, and is it going to do away with what we've done for all these years, and is going to take my place and my position? Could I one day even lose my job because people aren't you know, following what we, the way things we used to do and now everybody's following Jesus? You better believe they knew they had reports from all the good and all the bad you know, going on among the church. And when they saw this display of unity, where you know, for ages, there, you know, for generations, there's been division, it was prophetic. It was prophetic to them. It was a prophetic word in their hearts spoken by God that Jesus Christ breaks down barriers and they became part of it and they were willing to leave their jobs and to take away the security that they had in their professions and the guarantee of their incomes in order to follow Jesus. They were willing to leave all of that behind because they believed and they saw the prophetic example of the early church. That's powerful. That's powerful. That's the result. And what's about to happen is there's about to be, you know, we're about to have Stephen. He was listed first here. We kind of know what happens. This little preview. He's going to give up. He can preach too, bro. He can preach. And he can preach to the point that he gets killed for his preaching. He gets murdered for his preaching. He can preach. That's some good preaching right there. When People just stone you to death. That's some good preaching. E he, he and then this great wave of persecution has come. The only followers of Jesus left in Jerusalem will be the apostles themselves. Everybody else is fleeing out. Well, who's best prepared to go into the rest of the world and to share this message of Jesus Christ? It's the Greek speaking that you know the, and don't get me wrong, the Hebrews that are here, most of them spoke Greek too. okay? Most of them spoke it too. It's like English. It was the dominant language of the time most people speak multiple languages at this time so but, but yet there's a difference in that they have their, their names are Greek names their names are Greek names Greek speaking people went to Philip to say hey we want to know more about Jesus different Philip the apostle Philip well why'd they go to him and not one of the other disciples they recognize his name Oh, he's kind of like, he'll understand us. He'll understand our culture, our ways. See how that works? So they're going to be the best prepared, best equipped to take the gospel of Jesus Christ into new places, new territories. The Philip that's listed here, we're going to read more about him. He's huge in the life of the church. And he's, in the, he's going to end up in the book of Acts in the book of Acts in a place called Caesarea which is also a dominant place in the gospels one of the most important biggest shipping points in all of the world at this place I and mean, there's too much there that I want to tell you that I don't have time to tell you there but he's there for a reason because from there people are coming that are going to be going all over the world and he can give them the gospel there and they can take it with them Man, that's a novel concept Powerful. Powerful. And that's what I want to say today for an application for us. That today, that those who are intentionally forming relationships with people who are different, of different ethnicities and nations and language are best prepared to help the gospel to go forward to the ends of the earth. Those who strive to be multilingual are more prepared than those who aren't. I mean, I'm I'm saying that in some ways in terms of you know a lot of you're going to be having children over the coming years well you know are you going to build that into them early on do we you know they'll be able to reach people from lots of different places because they don't ha- you know they've they've got some of those barriers already broken down for themselves but really the main thing though let me tell you the main thing is because you know I try with my Spanish but I'm not good but I can still have a lot of conversations with people you know, are Spanish speakers? Well, why? Because I make a little bit of an effort, I make a little effort, and I and I try to love them. But let me tell you something on the back end of that: the love thing is the key deal. Because people will know, even if you can't communicate in the same language, people will know whether you love them or not. That's not that's not something you hear. That's something you feel. That's something you feel. You can sense it in yourself whether somebody loves you or not. And so that's the key. Ultimately, that's the key. These other tool things are helpful things, though. And we can't ignore them. Can't ignore them. Helpful. But you know, you try to dig in. You try to try to form some relations. You know, more relationships, deeper relationships with people who are you know come from a different background than you come from, and that will only better you. That will only better you. But it takes some effort. You know, we're so blessed to be here in Athens, Georgia. This church is so blessed to be here in Athens, Georgia. Because we don't even have to go anywhere. We do try to send people, and we do try to go. But you don't even have to go anywhere to reach people from all sorts of places. I mean, this week, I've gotten messages about this day from Japan, Romania, England, and Brazil. Just this week. Got messages from all those places. Those are all people who studied here at the University of Georgia and are now out in other places. Got messages from all those. And there's a couple common threads that those people said in their messages that they sent back that this church was family for them. That Jesus was the center. That Jesus was the reason that people were family together and worshiping him. And they're encouraged to be sharing their faith. They were encouraged. That was also a common thing. They're strengthened to encourage their faith back where they are, or where they are now, by being part of this church. So it is important. Yeah, we're a small church. There's no denying that. But a small church, we are proof that a small church can have a big impact. It can change lives and provide a sense of family for people. And what we do is important. But we need more people who will latch in and grab hold and say, yeah, I'm not just part way in, I'm, I'm all the way in. And I'm willing to make some sacrifices, and I'm willing to step out of my comfort zones, and I'm willing to go beyond what, how far I've gone to this point in order to be part of all of that. Because as we move forward, and we're always moving forward because time doesn't stop for us. You know, you move forward positively or you move forward negatively, but you're going to move forward. My prayer is that we move forward positively, striving for a greater diversity both economically and ethnically. And I say economically there too because a lot of times economic diversity is harder to have in a community of people than ethnic diversity. I'll let you ponder that a little while, but you'll see, if you think about it, I think you'll see that that is, that's true. But what we are, what we are becoming, what we have been, you know, this first way I can say what we have been, what we are, what we will be, a welcoming, embracing community for people who need a family, for people who need a home. There's people here who've come back today who can testify to that people who couldn't come back today that would testify to that, that this provided an embracing family for them. But I I pray that we are a prophetic voice to the larger Athens community of what happens, of what happens when people put Jesus first and agree that he can break down all barriers and just live with with Jesus being in the center so that, Language is not a barrier. You know, that is, you know, it's something we can overcome. Culture is not a barrier that hinders us. Ethnicity is not a barrier that hinders us. But all of these things are overcome in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is greater than all of those barriers. And he is our one hope. Because what we have always believed and what we believe today is that regardless of your economic background or your ethnicity or your language, we're all the same. And that we all only have one hope. There are people who have entered into that hope and people who have not entered into that hope yet. That's it. That's it. My only hope is Jesus and your only hope is Jesus. And the rest of it is details. But that's the key fact. The rest of it is details. That's the key fact is that Jesus is my one hope and Jesus is your one hope. And if that is true in my life and in your life, then nothing should be able to divide us from that. We should be so together in that, and nothing can divide us because Jesus is my one hope and he's your one hope. If we can agree on that reality, then I believe we can work through the rest. Sometimes there's difficulties along the way in that. But what happens when there's division is when we decide, we decide That Jesus, being our one hope combined, is not big enough to overcome our sins, is not big enough to overcome our cultural divides, is not big enough. We agree with the law of Satan that Jesus isn't big enough to overcome that. That's what happens. And I pray that we would be a small taste of that blessed fellowship around the throne of God. Revelation 5, verse 9, it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your, your blood you ransomed people for God. Think about this, the Lamb of God. He's worthy to take the seal, to the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Because he was slain by his blood, his ransomed people for God from every tribe. Did you hear that? Every tribe. Anyone left out, any tribe left out on this nation, in this planet? Around the throne of God, you're from every tribe. Every language. Any language left out? Not a one. Every people. Any people left out? Not a one. In every nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You made them a kingdom and priest to our God. We, you know, because of Jesus, because we're a new creation, because the new creation, as Volf says, the new creation is here, and it is now. And we can live in that new kingdom in the midst of the old decaying, broken, fallen world that we're in. And we can be that prophetic voice to it. For people that are in it to leave it and to come and to be part of who Jesus is and what he's done. And that's our hope and our prayer. But we have a responsibility. We have an, I believe we have a responsibility in our love for Jesus and, the, and our obedience to follow him. We have a responsibility in this day and in this time and this age that we find ourselves here in 2016 in the United States of America, in the South, in Athens, Georgia, with all the problems that are going on in our nation and our world, we have a responsibility in who we are and who we're made up of and how we treat and love one another. We have a responsibility to be a prophetic voice to our community, to the city of Athens and beyond it. We have a responsibility for that. I don't believe at this point in history it's optional. And we all have to work together, and we all have to reach out and strive, and we all have to be willing to be uncomfortable, and we all have to be willing to give up stuff in order to fully participate in that. It doesn't come easy. It's not just given to us. It's stuff you have to fight for and work for and be intentional about. And I would propose to you today that if true followers of Jesus have been serious about that for the last couple hundred years in this country, our country wouldn't be like it is today. Even the last 50 years. And we've had a lot of people doing a lot of good and a lot of work. I'm not undermining that, but I talk about just the masses in the whole. But you know what? The reality is, on the other side of that coin, we can't, you know, we don't get to dictate what everybody else does, but we get to decide what we do and who we are and how we make a difference and how we're a prophetic voice together. So as you take that bread in that cup, remember that that bread, one of the things that, that bread represents is unity, unity in the body of Christ, unity in this local church, and that's where you say, I, together, Jesus is our one hope. And I'm part of that. And I'm part of that. I'm part of what Jesus did on the cross when he died for his sins. I'm part of what he did when he rose from the dead. I'm in him. And that's my identity. And that's how I am to be defined above any and all else. Yeah, I'm still a white freckled male. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I am. But much greater than that, I'm loved by Jesus. And that bread and that cup is proof. And I'm part of something bigger than me, part of his church and his kingdom. And I'm privileged to be in that with other people who have a like mind and a like heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just praise you today. Thank you for your goodness to us, God, your love for us. Thankful that your word is truth, that we don't have to be ashamed of it. Thankful that we can just praise your name and love you today. And we'll to do so together. We take that bread and that cup and we respond, Lord, to your great love for us. We pray that Jesus, your son, would be the center of our praise of our conversation.